0: In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> well, it's also appropriate we're talking. We've been talking about marriages um, in the sermon series on First Corinthians, and uh, uh, joking with a few people this morning about this has uh, been a difficult series in a lot of ways because Paul talks about some serious issues that were going on in the church and in the culture in Corinth and. If you were visiting with us and you walk in and we're talking about some of these serious kind of controversial issues, it can be a little awkward. Like, what did I go to this church for? But we preach God's word here, and that's what we need to know. That's what we need to hear. And um, all of that's in the Bible for a reason, so that we can take what God said to people in a different culture, in a different time period in history, but say, still, this is God's Word. And how do we filter that? How do we use that as a lens to look at what's going on in our own culture, in our own lives? So we are going to hit uh, uh, today specifically a little bit about a question that I've mentioned that Paul's saying, hey, there's some questions that these people in Corinth were asking him. He spent a year and a half, if you've been here, you know I've kind of reiterated this, but Paul spent a year and a half with these folks starting this church, loving on these people, walking through them about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in their culture, and uh, then as he left after a year and a half, he's getting word back that there's some things going on in that church that people are struggling with, and he wants to help them. So he writes a letter to them and tries to uh, take those issues and walk them through uh, how they should look at those in light of being a Jesus follower. So I've named the sermon, Has God Left the Building?, and, uh, you know, godly wisdom in a, in a world that knows better. And we seem to have a lot of attitudes in our culture that kind of, as, as in Corinth thought, you know what, we know better. We know what this teaching is. We've heard God's word. But we're going we're gonna to listen to that. But we're going to decide whether that really applies to us in our lives. And as we've seen, God saying, I am the creator of the world. So I created marriage, I created relationships, I created this whole world so I know how it's intended to work and how it's supposed to work and he's given us his word so that we can follow that. Well, divorce is obviously a a, a painful issue and I, and I want to be sensitive to the fact that there may be some folks here that have been through that or maybe even going through that. And it can be a very difficult thing. How painful Can divorce be? Well, it it produces all kinds of emotions that people probably never even knew that they had before. But I I read about one Swedish man who his wife filed for divorce. And when he heard about her filing for divorce, he decided that he would cash in all of their investments that they had, which was about $82,000 worth. And he got cash money for all those investments. And he literally burned all of that cash so that there would be nothing left but a pile of ashes. Can you imagine? And you think, why in the world would somebody do that? But you probably know through having heard or been through it yourself, or had a loved one, or a friend, or a child, or uh, anybody you're related to, going through um, uh, divorce can produce these destructive emotions. And this is why God says in the Old Testament and the New Testament that I hate divorce. That's never what I intended when it comes to bringing the two to be one, well, we're going to continue to look at what Paul says about specifically about these issues, and uh, for us in the church, divorce has almost the same rate of uh, people that are Christians divorce at about the same rate as the rest of the world. It's almost fifty percent when you think about that, and that's that's discouraging when you think about that. You would think it would be different. In the church, and over the years, the church has become more gracious and understanding. I believe about divorce and remarriage in some cases, but there's still about four different views. There's those who say, "Hey, um, a divorce should, you should never divorce, and you should never remarry. That's under any circumstances." People take that very rigid view, and then there's some who believe under circumstances divorce is permitted, but never remarriage, and they take that. Kind of stringent view. And then there's some who believe divorce and remarriage are permitted under adultery or cases of desertion or abandonment. But that's the only way uh, that, that divorce should be permitted. And then there's some who believe divorce and remarriage can occur under many different circumstances. And you have to treat each, circumstances, uh, each circumstance as unique. And that's kind of where the church has fallen over in, in, in the last... Um, uh, I guess, uh, 10, 20, or even more years is because more people have divorced and people are coming into the church and we have to say, hey, you know what? Each individual situation is unique and we have to show the grace of God in this. We can't be so legalistic about it. But one of the things that was happening in Corinth and in their particular culture, and it also happens today as well and throughout history, is, is that one spouse... Um, they've been married, and neither one of them are believers. They're not Christians. And then all of a sudden, through their marriage, somebody decides or hears the gospel message and says, now I want to be a Christian, and they commit to being a Christian, but the other partner does not become a Christian. And that becomes difficult. Now what do we do? I've decided to be committed to Jesus Christ. I've committed to following Him, but my spouse has not. And that can create some tension in the marriage, as, as some of you know. And so the question came up to Paul, as it's come up a lot of times throughout history, is well, now that I'm a Christian and now that I'm following Christ and my spouse is not, should I stay married to this person who's not a Christian or should I divorce them? And Paul's going to specifically address that and some other issues uh, dealing with divorce. So we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning, and we're going to start in verse 10. And that's going to be up on the screen. Thank you. And follow along as I read. To the married I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this. I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should have, excuse me, should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters. Each person as responsible to God. Should remain in the situation they were in. When God called them. So a lot of different stuff there. huh? Uh, when it comes to the church community and divorce. There are two responses. That I think we need to be careful. Um, to avoid. One is. Too easily accepting divorce. Um, as the best choice. Just for any and every reason. And a lot of times. When we get married we have this uh, view of of expectations of marriage that maybe our our spouse does not and as you move forward things become a little rocky and there becomes tension and you think well there's a way out, there's always divorce is a way out and and years and years ago that was never even an option for so many people as I, I think about so many of you and I thank you. For those of you who have been married any amount of time and your presence in the church because of what it does, as an example to young people, they need to see people that are married 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, as I talked to someone this morning. That's an amazing thing. And any of those people will tell you, never has it been easy, but they've stuck together through those incredibly difficult times and, and those incredibly wonderful times together as God has called them to do. And... This is just a proven fact. When families stay together, the families are healthier. When communities have people who stay together in their marriages, the families and the communities are stronger. And that goes and it goes out like this. And I would say part of the reason that we have some of the issues we have in our culture and our nation is because of the breakup of the family. There's no doubt about that. It has happened. And we have to understand that that's never what God intended. And there's grace and there's forgiveness and we can move on and be restored. But that is never what God intended. And so the other is it's too easily accepting of of divorce as the best choice. But the other thing is a lack of forgiveness and acceptance of one who has gone through divorce. Sometimes the church can ostracize and be so um, legalistic towards someone who has been through a difficult divorce... That they don't show them the love and the grace of Christ. And that is certainly not something that is helpful either. So neither of those show a healthy knowledge of what God's word said on these tough issues. And how we should try to help someone walk through either a difficult marriage or what may be next for them in life. And that's why I'm thankful that I'm a believer in marriage counseling. I've been through marriage counseling. That's why we are... um, uh, supportive of, of Royal Life ministry, what Tim and Rebecca do. And y'all, a lot of y'all have been through maybe marital counseling, and it's certainly something that we need help with our marriage, and there's nothing to be ashamed of about that. And the church should be the one place we ought to be able to go to somebody and say, hey, I'm struggling with my marriage. Could you help me? Would you be willing to talk to me and listen to what I'm going through? And some of the best words we can hear sometimes are, me too, or I've been there, and we can walk people through that. Well, Paul starts by mentioning, you might have noticed, he says, I, not that I say this, but this is what the Lord says. And he's directly saying this is a teaching from Jesus. And Paul does this in all of his letters. He goes, I'm getting these teachings directly from Jesus. They've been passed on to me, and I'm passing them on to you. So he says, this particular teaching, Jesus says, he says, um, I say this about divorce. And so he's referring to, if we look in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, In Luke, they specifically give accounts where Jesus is asked a question about divorce and he gives what the teaching is. So I'm going to go to Mark chapter 10. I think we're going to have that on there as well. Thank you. And some of the Pharisees come to Jesus one day and ask him specifically about divorce. Now, did they really want to know about this? Yeah, I think some of them really wanted to know what Jesus thought about it, but they were also... also Always trying to lay a trap for Jesus and see if he would say something that would be against the law or or whatever. So some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus, as a true rabbi, kicks it right back to them in the form of a question. What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate divorce and send her away. Listen to how that's even phrased. It was because your hearts were hard That Moses wrote this to you, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. He's referring back to Genesis. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That's coming from Jesus. How many of y'all heard that in your own wedding ceremony? Towards the end. What God has brought together, let no one separate. That's a powerful part. When I get to do a marriage ceremony and I say that, I mean, I'm like, I'm hoping y'all are grasping this. God has brought y'all together. Yes, you have been brought together in a covenant, but God's also a part of that covenant, and no one should separate that. So when they were in the house again, Mark goes on to say, the disciples asked Jesus about this, because they're like, man, that's hard. That's difficult, Jesus. And he answered. He didn't let he didn't let up on this. He goes, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. He didn't back off of that. Now, that's difficult, isn't it? When you think about divorce, when you think about your own life, maybe your kid's life have have been divorced, some friends that have been divorced, are they in a constant state of adultery? I don't think it's in a constant state, but I do think there's a part of repentance and going to God and saying, God, I didn't do things your way. And in some cases, you know, uh, divorce is is inevitable in in certain cases like adultery, uh, in certain cases of abuse, in certain cases of addiction. Now, the power of God is stronger than any of those three A's I just mentioned, isn't it? And we know that even people that have been through adultery or addiction or abuse can still have their marriages restored through the power of Christ. But we also know in some, uh, lots of occasions, there's been people where the other spouse will not relent on that abuse or that addiction or that adultery. And unfortunately, there is a divorce that comes out of that. But Jesus saying, I'm not going to back down for what God's ideal was, and that's how he looked at it. Jesus took this very strong view of marriage as God's design to be a lifetime for one man and one woman forever. And he addressed the hard hearts. He goes, Moses even made that law up for you because your hearts were hard. Even way back then, you were looking for an out, he said, so you could divorce her, give her a certificate, and send her away. What is that? He's saying, I know where that came from. And he addressed those. And there's hard hearts in our culture and our society. That's why he said Moses wrote that particular law to address your hard hearts. But Jesus makes it clear, divorce is not what God intends when two people make this covenant relationship with themselves and with God. In his book, Mere Christianity, it was really a series of writings. A lot of y'all have have heard of C.S. Lewis, and and Mere Christianity is probably one of my favorite books of all time. If you've never read that, I would encourage you to read that. But in that book, uh, he does mention, C.S. Lewis talks about marriage, and he says this. He says, People get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, When they find out they are not, they think this proves they have made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. In this department of life, as in every other, thrills come at the beginning and do not last. Let the thrill go. Let it die away. Go on through the period of death into the quieter interest and happiness that follow, and you will find... You are living in a world of new thrills all the time. Now, this is spoken by someone at the time who was not married, but yet later in life was married at a very later date in his life. But interesting how his perspective, and how true is that? There seems to be this thrill, and a lot of times, young people, when they get married, they think it's going to stay in this honeymoon phase. And it doesn't always stay in the honeymoon phase. Have you all seen the AT&T commercial, you know, the honeymoon phase? (laughs) It's like very very similar to that. But he's saying, no, everything in life can't always be the thrill it was when it first started. It doesn't always stay that way. But he's saying, by God's design, we can get through those difficult. And when things change, it's actually a new time for us to go through these things together. Just as Jesus was saying. So next, Paul addresses the situation, obviously, that has come up there in Corinth. What if you become a follower of Jesus and your spouse does not and Paul says I not the Lord now what Paul's saying here is the specific thing I just addressed about divorce this comes from the Lord's teaching that I heard directly from his disciples that Jesus said that has been quoted and passed down about specifically divorce but this particular situation he's saying I'm going to have to weigh in on it Based on what Jesus said about divorce, but Jesus didn't specifically address, well, what do you do when someone becomes a Christian and they both have not been followers of Christ? How do you deal with that? So he says, that's why he says, I, not the Lord. Now this doesn't in any way call into question the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this. Paul's just being honest. I'm having to take Jesus' teaching and apply it to something that happened after Jesus had died and been buried and rose again and went back to heaven. So Paul basically says, don't leave or divorce your unbelieving spouse if they're willing to live with you. Just because you've become a Christian, how, how detrimental would that be? Say, now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to divorce you because you haven't come to that conclusion yet. That's not going to help the marriage. And how are they going to view Christianity and Jesus after that? So he says, no. If they're willing to stay with you, stay with them. And then notice he says something interesting. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife... And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So what is Paul saying here? Does it mean the unbelieving spouse is saved because their spouse is? No, he's not saying they're saved. But we know that it's not saved but sanctified. The Greek word that he uses here in saying sanctified means to acknowledge, to be honorable. And so what you're saying is, is I'm staying in this marriage, although I'm a believer now and my spouse is not, I still look at them as valuable and honorable. And I'm going to pray for them and hope that they come to the conclusion that I did, that they need Jesus as their Savior and Lord in their life. Paul seems to be saying that when someone becomes a Christian, a follower of Jesus, even if their spouse has not made that decision yet, they are still valuable in God's sight. He's always wanting. He says, I don't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. And now having this direct influence through someone who has been committed to Jesus, they are now closer to see what it means to have Jesus in their life. And this is this is instrumental. The behavior, the attitude, the reactions of this Christ followers should have a positive influence on uh, their unbelieving spouse as well as their children. They're going to say, Look, mom or dad used to be like this, but now they say they're a a Christian, they're a follower of Jesus, and I've noticed they've changed. There's different things in their life now, and it has made a, a difference, and it's made a difference in our family. And sometimes you might scratch your head and say, What's going on with mom? What's going on with my wife? What's going on with my husband? They're different now. And they can be impacted by those changes in their own lives. And the believing spouse will also be praying and looking for opportunities to share their faith with their spouse. God's grace to their spouse and children. That hopefully leads to a process in the unbeliever's life to want to also become a follower of Jesus. But you know what? That's a process, isn't it? It takes time, and sometimes they're jealous of you. Sometimes they're skeptical of the one who is a Christian, like, oh, you're just goody-goody. That will fade away. It's not a real thing. It's just a phase that you're going through. But it will have an impact on your spouse and your children. Children are certainly influenced when they see the committed faith and grace of Jesus in someone of their parents' life. How many times has a child says, I was so thankful for my parents' faith, and I saw that. I saw them pray for me. I saw them read the Bible. They drug me to church, as we say. But it made an influence on life. Their faith had an impact on my faith. A lot of y'all may have seen or heard about the book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. And James led a, that movie for us probably last year on our Wednesday night. And a lot of y'all, i look around and see some of y'all were here. Powerful movie. True story of uh, Lee Strobel who was... Uh, Um, a very skeptical investigative reporter, but his wife became a Christian through a friend and through an incident that happened in their life, and she started going to church and became a follower of Jesus and told her husband about this, and... He wasn't happy about this. He wasn't. He didn't like this. And being an investigative reporter, he did everything he could to try to disprove this Christianity thing, this Jesus, his resurrection from the dead. It's a powerful movie. But through his wife Leslie and her prayers and her consistent and staying with him, even when he was less than uh, loving, she stayed with him. And ultimately, Lee was led to be a follower of Jesus Christ and has become a tremendous a writer of books and a, a really uh, a tremendous speaker all over the world and sharing through his experience about Jesus and the case for Christ. So if you've never read that book or seen that movie, I encourage you to do that. And probably even some of you today have been influenced probably before you were a believer by maybe your spouse or a parent or someone close who by their example led you to become a follower of Jesus. And you have a story, you have a testimony that you can tell because of your spouse, because of someone close to you. In the last section, Paul speaks about drastic physical changes or being troubled about some kind of change you need to make in a specific area of your life when you become a Christian. And that may mean more of a process than a quick change. Sometimes we think when we become a Christian, we have to start doing all these things immediately like Christians do. And sometimes I think what Paul is saying here is sometimes you have to wait. It's a process. I remember James and I had a, um, a professor at Emmanuel who told a, told a great story um, about uh, his dad worked on this guy. And he was a little town in North Carolina. And he was a preacher at this, this church for years and years. And this guy would never come to church. His family did. His wife did. Um, But he finally would go out and talk to him out in the field, out on his tractor, and just have these conversations. And finally the guy started coming to church, became a Christian. And he, he finally got to baptize him, and when he got baptized, the day he got baptized, he stepped into the baptistry, and it was very cold, and he, he said a swear word right as he stepped into the thing. And our professor would just laugh his head off and talk about that and says, Isn't that wonderful? And I, when I was sitting there in the class, i go, Isn't that wonderful? He said a swear word in the baptistry, and he goes, Because he still wasn't there yet, but he was taking that step. He was taking that step, and there's grace. And God understands that he takes us right where we are and takes us right there at that spot and moves us into where he wants us to be. And so that always made an uh, an impression on me, that story, and said, that's exactly right. We don't have to get all cleaned up. While we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us and called us to be a Christian. So keep that in mind. So Paul, in the last part of this, talks a little bit about this process. It's more of a process then a, a quick change, altering your physical body or altering your external circumstance, thinking that this will please God and make Him happy. And it's like, no, God's already happy with you as you are. Now He's transforming you. Let Him do that. You don't have to do all the transformation. God saves us where we are. As we move forward in the transforming power of that grace of Jesus, saying, I know where you are, I know where you've come from. And this is who you are right now. But I want to take you right there and transform you. And there will certainly be some changes that will need to be made. But most of these are a process as we grow over time. And the two he mentions are circumcision and slavery. Now some of you might have went, how do you, once you've been circumcised, how do you not be circumcised? I know I was like, what in the world? So I kind of looked that up a little bit. <laughs> and there was a minor surgery that some people actually did in this culture that could make you Uncircumcised again. Now, why you would want to do that, but... And we think, how is that a big deal? How do people even know? Well, in this culture, when men went to the public baths and went to even gyms in that day... They were naked. I know it's crazy. I know it, but that's the way it was. So people are like, oh, that guy's a Jew. Oh, that guy's not a Jew. Oh, that guy's been circumcised. Oh, that guy hasn't been circumcised. I know it's weird to bring that up in church, but I'm just saying, Paul talked about these things. But he's saying, if you were circumcised before, don't get uncircumcised. If you weren't circumcised before, don't go get circumcised. That's not, that was something that was part of the old covenant that was very significant. But now we're under a new covenant with Jesus and that's not necessary to show that you are committed to Jesus. It's something else, not an outward sign. And there were other things that people do. I've known people that as soon as they get uh, uh, become a Christian, I've had some friends who go out and get some kind of a Christian tattoo. And there's nothing wrong with that if that celebrates them becoming a Christian, but that's not necessary to do that. For us, it seems maybe an, uh, odd to point this out, but in this culture, both of these things slavery and circumcision were, were uh, issues b- among believers and non-believers and, and among the Jewish community the circumcision issue was a big deal but Paul knew that hey don't go back into that old covenant into that slavery of being legalist I used to be there he says so don't go back into that stay right where you are and let Jesus lead you into where he wants you to go in your growth and slavery was obviously another issue widely practiced in this first country, uh, first culture, first century culture. And although it may have been different than what we might know from our own American history and, and slavery here that's been brought up a lot lately. Nevertheless, Paul seems to say here, freedom is a value that all humans should always seek. Not only for yourself, but for other people. Freedom is something. But recognize, physical freedom does not guarantee spiritual freedom. It does not guarantee that. We can be physically free but enslaved by so many things spiritually in our lives and in our culture. Some believe Paul should have spoken out a lot more directly about slavery in his culture. A lot have said that. Why didn't Paul, why didn't Jesus speak out more specifically and say that, that slavery was wrong? Because it seems so obvious, I believe, to both Jesus and Paul that it was wrong. And they did speak against it, but it was part of the culture, and they had to deal with it anyway. And I think Paul took some of the same approach as Jesus, that he did not directly challenge the state or the government, but taught and modeled a better way of life for the world to see in your actions. Now, at one time, and I want to remind you all of this as we talk about politics coming up. And very soon, we're going to have uh, either have a new president or the same president, and we get all bent out of shape about this. Name me one time that Jesus said anything about Caesar or the government in the Gospels. Not once did he say anything. He says, it's not about that. That's important. And yeah, that's going on. But until you change your heart and change your ways, one person at a time, culture itself is not going to change. And you can blame it on Caesar. And Caesar was not a good guy, was he? Did a lot of bad stuff. But ultimately, what happened to Caesar's regime? It fell, didn't it? And it's a, you know, we need to be reminded of that. And we can be physically free, but we can be all caught up in all these other things. Some believe Paul should have spoken more against that, but Paul took that approach that Jesus did. Um, listen to what uh, Paul says, um, and certainly a lifestyle of love and grace modeled by Christians in the first century. This is what made Christianity grow so much because people saw something different in these people. That in their actions, they weren't protesting, they weren't going against trying to you know, get all the, 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 the whole culture stirred up. Just by the way they live, people go, those people are different. There's something different about them. And uh, Paul said this to the letter to, to the church at Philippi. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. But Paul does close this topic by saying this, as you probably noticed. For the one who was a slave when called by faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Remember, just a few um, Sundays ago, he talked about this. You were bought at a price. He's reminding these Christians, he's reminding us that we were all bought at a price. And do not become slaves of human beings, brothers and sisters. Each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. There's that that, that powerful phrase, you and I were bought at a price. Christ's incredible sacrifice to actually give us that freedom, free us from slavery. And Paul specifically says, don't become slaves of human beings. Well, let me tell you something. In that culture, with all these different things going on, these pagan worship centers, people were becoming slaves of human beings. Not only in prostitution, but giving their money and doing these things that people were laughing all the way to the bank. And let me tell you something. In our culture, there are people laughing all the way to the bank by the things we become slaves of. Have we not become slaves to this? And this is not a bad thing in and of itself, but I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm constantly trying to get my kids' attention because it's like, what, 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 what? We become slaves to this and the slaves that it brought us And and there's other things, you know, phones are just one, computers, media. People become slaves to pornography. I mentioned last week a billion-dollar industry, sports. There's a lot of things that in our culture can enslave us. And Paul's saying this is a process that God wants to get us out of and free us from those things. The good news of the gospel takes the exact situation that you're in, that I'm in, that our children, that our kids... That our culture is in. And he begins to change. Sometimes our physical surroundings yes. But sometimes he says stay right where you are. And because of the transformation I'm going to make in you. It's going to make an impact on other people. And I want that to happen. I need that to happen. Importantly our inward thoughts. Our mindset. Our focus. To change from what we used to think about. To seeking first God's kingdom. And God's righteousness. And this is this process that God wants to do in us. So maybe there's somebody here today that needs to start that process. Maybe you need to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And he calls you right where you are in the very situation you're in to become that. Or maybe you're looking for a church where we again teach God's word on these things. It's not always popular. It's not always what people want to hear. But it is God's word. And we want to continue to encourage people to look through the lens of Scripture and everything, whether it's divorce or whatever we're involved in in life, that we look at God's Word and what did Jesus say and how do we respond to that in light of the gospel message. So we're going to sing a song uh, of invitation. And if there's someone here today that needs to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we want to give you that opportunity. Or if you're looking for a church home where we encourage people to become